Gamophilia. Hello, fellow Anglophiles, and welcome to the season five finale of Anglophilia. I'm Stephanie Callis. And I'm Kaylee McMahon. And today, for your listening pleasure, we will be dissecting the wonderful, miraculous flea bag. Oh my god, I can't believe it. I know, I'm so excited. Um, before <laughs> I even start my introduction, though, I'm just going to say that the plot contains a couple of key twists and turns, and this show's narrative is really central to our discussion of it, so this episode is going to contain major spoilers. And I'm assuming that most of you out there has probably already seen the show, but just on the off chance that you have not, I'm going to say, pause this podcast right now, head on over to Amazon Prime and spend six delightful hours of your life catching up and then come back here when you feel emotionally ready. Agreed. So with that business out of the way, Fleabag is a dark BBC3 comedy based on a one-woman show by Phoebe Waller-Bridge that she took to the Edinburgh Fringe in 2013. The title comes from Waller-Bridge's own family nickname, though the events are not autobiographical and no one in the show ever addresses the eponymous character by name. Perhaps the TV show's greatest signature is its innovative breaking of the fourth wall. Fleabag frequently addresses the audience directly to provide exposition, jokes, and color running commentary on her life as it unfolds. Waller-Bridge referred to it in an interview as the character's secret camera friend. The first season of the show, which aired in 2016, adapted and expanded the original monologue, which tells the story of a brash, sexually adventurous, or perhaps misadventurous, charming, witty, broken, wounded, angry young woman, grieving the loss of both her mother and, more recently, her best friend Boo, and grappling with the unresolved guilt around the circumstances of the latter's death. However, she hides her brokenness behind her wry asides and humorous looks to the camera, until eventually that facade also cracks. In addition to our lovable filthy anti-heroine, the show also featured Sean Clifford as her uptight older sister Claire, Olivia Coleman as her godmother, an artist and fake nice narcissist, Bill Patterson as her emotionally distant dad, Brett Gelman as her odious brother-in-law Martin, Hugh Skinner as on-again, off-again boyfriend Harry, and Jenny Rainsford as Boo. In 2019, the series returned for a second and final season, this season revolving around Fleabag's fascination, flirtation, and unlikely connection with the priest, played by Andrew Scott, who is set to officiate her father and godmother's wedding. The show has garnered an overwhelming critical and fan response, as well as numerous awards, including Emmys for Outstanding Lead Actress, Writing, Directing, and Comedy Series. And that's all she wrote. So you told me to watch this show first. I did. I went back through our Facebook messages and just did a search for Fleabag, <laughs> oh, and I found incredible. the first message. Did you do the same thing? I haven't gone back years and years, but I definitely reread the messages I sent you the first time that uh, Fleabag and the Priest actually kissed. Fleabag and the Priest. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> uh, we will yeah. we will discuss all of that. But um, okay. but so going back to like the first time that we watched watched it. I, I found the very first mention of the word fleabag in our Facebook history was on September 21st, 2016. And I wrote, Stephanie, go on Amazon Prime and watch Fleabag and then talk to me about it. <laughs> My mom had told me to watch this show and I watched it in a day and it's perfect. It's so crazy because I feel like the show was a great show when it was only one season. And then last year's season two came out and suddenly it became a cultural phenomenon. I know that it's a show that means a lot to both of us and to so many people out there. But I feel like for three years, I was nagging so many people people who aren't you because you took my advice immediately to watch this show and like nothing but then suddenly season two came out and everybody was jumping on board and I was like 
Yeah, damn yeah. right. I think a lot of that might have had to do with Academy Award winner Olivia Coleman. She had just oh, won the award. That's right. I also think maybe the Andrew Scott Moriarty connection, a lot of, you know, American Cumberbitches out there. <laughs> I mean, close friends of mine hadn't watched season one before season two came out. I loved it when it was just one season, mm-hmm. and she thought originally that that was the end because she had told the entire story that, that the, the one woman fu- show yeah. had already told, just, you know, expanded it and fleshed out the world with more characters. And yeah, it's a perfect example example of only coming back when you know you have a reason to. Again, something that we said that we love about a lot of the British shows that we've covered on here is knowing when to bow out when you've told the story that you want to tell and not just staying around to keep milking that cash cow until it drops dead in front of you. And this is a great example of like waiting three years and then, oh, I have an idea for how to take this story even further. And then people loved the second season even more than the first. Yeah. So do we want to start by talking about the character of Fleabag? Because this is... Yeah, that's that's always her show do you like her of course i, I like love her. her i love her so i love much. her so much it's interesting because i feel like we're meant to love her and to be on her side but also to be perhaps a little bit critical or skeptical of her like she's maybe presented as a bit of an unreliable narrator but i never doubted her i don't know since it has its roots as a one woman show where you basically have to take her at her word because you can't see anything else like she's one actress is playing all of the characters so we have to just kind of take for granted that what she's saying is true or if not, then we'll never have any way of finding out. But a perfect example of that is when we meet the godmother for the first time, who interestingly mm-hmm. is not a character at all in the One Woman show. I was nope. surprised to discover because um, I saw it at the Soho Playhouse when it had a brief run here last spring. And yeah, that was a role that was specifically written for Olivia Coleman. So that was just fleshed out instead of just being this sort of phantom that you hear about mm. that the father is now romantically involved with. She becomes like this excellent villain for season one, basically. The first time that we see her, is you know she, she's working on uh, painting this canvas and then she says she's not an evil stepmom she's just a cunt and <laughs> I instantly believed her because Olivia Coleman's performance she does the fake nice so well it's like so you funny. can definitely tell that something's up but I read a lot of interviews with Phoebe Waller-Bridge and sometimes the interviewer would say you know at first I thought she's being so lovely and you think that she's just being biased but then you see the cruelty come out more and more as the series goes on and you see that she really is a cunt. Right. But even just like a couple seconds later, I don't know, maybe it's because I know some people in my own life. I'm familiar with that sort of, oh, a tiny little dig. Oh, a slightly deeper dig. Oh, I'm gonna destroy you with words. I mean, I don't know. I just never doubted that she was completely right about what sort of a monster this woman was to her. Right. She is honest with her secret camera friend to a point. As we learn later on in the first series finale, she omits, but she never lies to us. She's very, very honest, and that's something that we love about her. She's, you know, refreshingly frank about all of these weird sexual truths and humiliating experiences that she has, and she frames them in a way that makes them very entertaining for our benefit, but also, I think, very relatable. Well, I think that she... (laughs) It's the Spice Girls lyric, you might do the wrong thing for the right reason. I kind of feel like (laughs) when she tells Claire about her awful haircut, Claire, it's French. It's to protect Claire. It's not Mm -hmm. an evil lie. There are moments in season two, because in season two, she starts to get scared that the priest is seeing her. 
like mm-hmm. seeing the real her. And so yeah. there are little asides that I feel like are a little bit dishonest, but they're in a self-preservation sort of mode. When Fleabag is behaving badly, when she steals things, when she kind of harms herself with the binge drinking or the sex, mm-hmm. she's grieving. She's she's just lost her mother. Yes. And then she's lost her best friend. She's acting out out of grief. And yeah. she knows that she's not at her best. And maybe at her best, she's still a loud, not always proper, wacky, quirky, hilarious, unpredictable person, Mm -hmm. but she's not a horrible person. I would still want to have her as a friend. Oh, no, 100%. I I, I really would. I would go so far as to say that she is my friend. She is all of our friend. (laughs) She's all of our best friend. And I'm so completely on her side. And you're right. We, she's grieving the entire time that we know her. We never see her not grieving, except perhaps in some of the flashbacks where we see Boo, it's not clear whether those are before or after her mother died. But yeah, she's just always in pain. But she is presenting her life in a way that, as I said, is is for our own entertainment and consumption. The thing that I think makes Fleabag so interesting and that endears us all to her so much is the breaking of the fourth wall and talking directly to us. Sure. I'd like to quote an interview with Phoebe Waller-Bridge on NPR's Fresh Air. I'm slightly condensing or paraphrasing this, but talking about the breaking of the fourth wall, she says, it allowed me to play with the idea of control of her own narrative. She puts forward this image of herself and this attitude that she has for you, you know, the audience, when she says, here I am, I'm fine, come into my life, this is going to be hilarious, I'm going to show you these hilarious, like, sexual encounters that I have, I'm going to be really funny, I'm going to keep the energy energy up for you and this promise that she has at the beginning which seems like fun it feels like a kind of complicit friendship and she's like you know come on in with me and the idea that if that's where we start that's got to break down because that can't be that's such a difficult thing to maintain for anybody because it's a front so it was that kind of dichotomy of experience that I really wanted to play with as well she's trying to convince you that she's fine and actually the relentlessness of being witnessed means that she eventually that has to break down because she can't keep that up the whole time Oh, yeah, 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 it's true. What did you make of her addressing the audience? Because I think that I initially had a very different interpretation than than what Phoebe Waller-Bridge lays out. How do you interpret her breaking of the fourth wall? Until season two, I felt like her breaking of the fourth wall was not unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Mm-hmm. Except that when she starts to have the flashes of the incident with Boo, we're kind of led to believe that we're seeing what's happening in her mind when she gets the Mm -hmm. flashes of these images and then she'll look at the camera and say let's not talk about that now so Mm -hmm. that was kind of what made the breaking of the fourth wall different to me that it wasn't just Clarissa explains it all uh, addressing the camera (laughs) or or, yeah Malcolm in the middle or or even in like a chewing gum way Mm -hmm. that pilot she addresses the camera and she talks about waiting for the guy to come over and she's drunk half a bottle of wine that seemed very Yep, I'm watching a comedy where a quirky person talks to me. But that started to shift as the tone of the show started to shift. Yeah. As you got to know her more and the people around her more. And as you got to see like, oh, this isn't just a wacky show about a woman talking about sex. There's a lot going on and I'm someone that she also doesn't want to disappoint. I mean, I think that there are several ways that you can interpret it. The biggest thing about us being her secret friend that nobody else in the world can see is that she doesn't have 
any friends. You're right, it's not just like a Clarissa explains it all thing where she's explaining things to the audience because it shows a fun side of her character or because we need to be filled in on some backstory, but because she's very often the smartest, funniest person in the room, and so if she's going to make a joke, they're not going to get it, so she needs to address it to us. Yes. In the absence, like, she, her best friend died, which is so horrible, and also her mother has died, and we never meet her mother even in flashbacks, but we hear from her father that she gets a lot of herself from her. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, these two ghosts who are hanging heavy throughout the whole series. We meet one intermittently, but basically this is a woman who is entirely alone. She has a very weird, fucked-up family who sort of tolerates her at best, and these, you know, sexual dalliances with men for whom she is way too smart, and she doesn't seem to have any real feelings for them, and vice versa. It's all just sort of meaningless, and so her only real relationship is with us, and that's, of course, very, very sad. Got it. But that's something that I love so much about the finale of the first season, when we learn the truth about Boo, that the reason that she sort of accidentally committed suicide is because her boyfriend, who we learned in the first episode, slept with someone else, but that someone else was Fleabag. I think that this is just an example of one of the ways in which the TV show is so much better than the one-woman show. Not that there's anything wrong with the one-woman show, but it's just this elevates it and deepens it and broadens it to so many different new exciting places. And the revelation about Boo is just so much better because she doesn't have to tell us or admit anything. She can't lie to us, but she also can't hide from us anymore because she can't suppress these memories and these flashbacks that she's been trying to push away from her consciousness this whole time. And so you just hear, you know, this really dissonant music and you see the choppy flashbacks and the editing and her silent tear-streaked face just looking at the camera in this speechless shame. And it's like she's unable to really admit to herself or unwilling to admit to herself what she did and how bad she feels for contributing to her friend's death. And I just found that so, so effective. That sequence versus her just sitting on a stage by herself telling us what happened. You mean? Yeah, exactly. Like she doesn't have to confess because we're in her head in this way. Well, yeah. Plus it's her sister, Claire, who vocalizes like it's what you did to Boo. Yeah. And then you see the sequence of the flashbacks and the music gets scary and she backs away from us. Yeah. And um, I wrote down, dude, this is like the sixth sense when Bruce Willis realizes he's dead. <laughs> it's so much better, but you're right. But it's similar. Like, yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. A, there's a similar sort of like, wait, there's all these flashbacks and voices and Bruce Willis looking freaked out, pressing himself up against yeah. the wall. And we're piecing like, it together. Yeah, yes. yeah. No, completely. The character of Claire, it is one of the funniest performances I've ever seen. She's the funniest one on the whole show. Everything is played as if she's like about to have an aneurysm from stress and anxiety. (laughs) She's so uptight. She's got that tense smile. Every time her eyes just flash really wide and she seems like she's going to explode. I just can't help but laugh. She feels so overly responsible for everything Fleabag says and does and entirely too annoyed by everything and Mm -hmm. not all of her dialogue is funny she has some dialogue that's hilarious like when she says Mm -hmm. i haven't farted in three years or whatever Mm -hmm. but she can also just say any line of dialogue and it's so funny that clenched jaw and she's so angry but yeah that sisterly dynamic of i'm so embarrassed by your very presence you don't even have to say anything i i just believed they were sisters yeah and i believed that claire was just exhausted by the whole thing i was really delighted to learn that the two of them met at drama school and they've been wanting to play sisters for over a decade and phoebe really fought for her to get the role and i'm glad that she won that fight 
Oh, good. Good, good, yeah. good. Claire, I loved her entire arc. I was so happy for her eventually. Oh, God, me too. Because her husband's the worst. I said earlier that I think the godmother is the villain of season one, but I think that Martin's definitely the villain of season two. It kind of mm-hmm. shifts. He's equally repugnant in season one, but he just becomes that much more of an aggressive asshole actively trying to ruin Fleabag's life. And in the first season... Claire, she has a very difficult time relating to Fleabag. You can definitely tell it's such a classic older sibling, younger sibling dynamic where the younger sibling wants more and the older sibling just wants to be left the fuck alone. And you can see that kind of start to crack in the episode with the silent retreat. And then Claire takes these little steps towards becoming more independent and being more of a badass and starting to believe and connect with and relate to her sister before she then does a complete 180 in the season one finale when she goes back to her shitty husband and takes back her vows to take the promotion in Finland and leave her awful husband and give Fleabag the money to rescue her sinking cafe. That was such a betrayal. Yeah. And then in season two I feel like season two is kind of Claire's redemption I mean the whole thing because it's got all of this Catholic symbolism and the setting and the pursuit of a priest there's a lot of stuff about religion and redemption and obviously Fleabag has done some really horrible things that she is still very much struggling with the guilt of But I think that Claire is really the one who comes out as the hero and the winner of that season. She's finally able to be the sister that Fleabag needs her to be and also become the woman that she needs to become. She's liberated by the end and I'm so happy for her. She's kind of a performatively perfect person. Like she has a line in the first episode when they meet up at that feminist lecture. They start bickering a little bit and Fleabag is teasing her about a time that Claire got drunk and took a shit in a sink. (laughs) And Claire's defense is I have two degrees, a husband, and a Burberry coat. Mm-hmm. As if that means that you could never ever do something so unspeakable as shit in a sink. Is, yeah. <laughs> and, and those are all... I have two degrees, a husband, and a Burberry coat. Therefore, I am a good person. She really yeah. has bought into that idea. But she's clearly so miserable with yeah. all of it. And I love season two when she says some surprisingly nice things things like that moment in the park where Fleabag admits she's met someone and that someone is a priest and Claire Mm -hmm. knows exactly who Fleabag is talking about the way she starts laughing and says you're a genius you're my hero hero." I think that she might actually be the most dynamic character on the show she's definitely the only one other than Fleabag I would say who changes most of the other characters with the exception of the priest who also is afforded some emotional depth everybody else is sort of one-dimensional and that's not a criticism of the show I think that's intentional I mean very few people even are afforded names on this show I mean there's Claire Martin Harry and Jake and Boo and then everybody else is either dad or godmother or arsehole guy or hot misogynist even priest like everybody is just sort of defined in relation to what function they serve in her life Mm -hmm. and so that kind of allows them to be less fully realized people yeah the thing that you said though about how claire uses her two degrees husband and burberry coat as evidence that she has it all together it reminds me of a part of the quote that i read earlier that i actually omitted because it was just a super long quote but in the middle she was talking about how you know and like i do this in my own life where you know i put on my red lipstick and i have my hair all nice and i go out and it's like oh no i'm fine of course oh yeah don't i look like i'm totally pulled together world i'm fine but then inside it's like ah i don't know what i'm doing (laughs) and so fleabag also 
is a complete emotional wreck, as we learn by the end of the first season. She has nothing in her life remotely together. By the end of the season, every single person in her life has turned her back on her. She loses every possible pillar of support, and it's just devastating to see her completely alone and unraveled. But she tries so hard to pull it together for the benefit of her invisible audience mm -hmm. to be like, oh yeah, I'm fine. I know what I'm doing. It's cool that I'm not enjoying these meaningless sexual encounters. I don't even enjoy the feeling of sex. It's just, it's all just fun. It's hilarious. It's all a game. Yeah. That's actually something that Phoebe Waller-Bridge said that a lot of people related to, and she's found that very sad, but that speech that she has, I'm not obsessed with sex. I just can't stop thinking about it. She said that it was the result of conversations with a lot of female friends and also a little bit her own experience, how a lot of times young women especially the thing that they find intriguing about sex is the validation and the game of it, as opposed to the actual experience of being physically intimate with another person. And I hate that, and I hate that I relate to it so much, but like, of course, of course the before part is the best part of sex. Sex is like Christmas. Has it ever actually lived up to the hype? I don't think so. <laughs> the fucked up thing is that I was just gonna instinctively say, well, not since I was a kid. <laughs> <laughs> Like, okay, in the first season, there's an episode that opens with her screwing, like, the really attractive, stupid guy. Mm -hmm. This guy is screwing her, and he's literally saying, look at me. Look at me. <laughs> and it's so accurate. <laughs> it is what men are thinking when they're screwing you. Oh, God. And, yeah. and then they're switching positions, and then she does her female role, and she's going, look sexy, always stay sexy. Yes. And yes, I'm talking about perhaps empty sex. I'm not talking about meaningful sex between two people who are in love. Sure. But yeah, both parties are performing, except mm -hmm. the male is only performing maybe 80% for himself, really, and 20% <laughs> for her. And, and she's just like getting also the same validation of like, I look sexy. Mm-hmm not this feels incredible yeah another great example of sex as performance is yeah. in the penultimate episode after when she's sleeping with hot misogynist which is the character name of the the lawyer that her sister sets her up with after her brother-in-law threatens to sue her for punching him in the face she has had sex with him the previous night he made her come nine times she has called him for another booty call to get her mind off of the priest but then the priest shows up instead and so she has to turn away the hot misogynist when he comes to the door and he won't leave. He says like, well, did you not like what I did? Because if you did like what I did, then maybe like he doesn't seem to understand that a woman can change her mind and is in fact allowed to do so. The only way that he actually accepts her telling him to fuck off is that she says, you were the best sex I've ever had. I came nine times. And then he was like, oh, you're a saint. And like the fact that even something as important as her pleasure is still just all about his validation of his male ego oh my god, been there. My ex-boyfriend, he was only invested in giving me an orgasm as far as like it was a point for him because if I was like too tired to continue and didn't want to, I was like, it's fine. He still would just like, it. I don't know. It's something that really bothers me is like the pressure for a woman to have an orgasm, not for herself. Like, right. obviously try to make your female partner come. That's very important to, to close the orgasm gap, but not to the point where she's exhausted and it is like not wanted. I've had to explain to more than one person, like, look, 
at this point, after X amount of minutes that we've been doing this, I only feel irritated. Yes. If you were to somehow make me come at this point, it would still just be irritation briefly interrupted by several moments of pleasure and back to irritation. And yes. I don't need it. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> See, I love that we're talking about this. And I feel like this is a conversation that you and I as very dear friends going back many years would probably be having anyway. But I also feel like Fleabag in talking so frankly about sex from a female point of view, not from a gay man writing about female point of view as in Sex in the City, yeah. you can get really honest about periods, about miscarriages, about sex that is technically consensual, but still not fully wanted, you know, not enjoyed exactly. Um, sex that feels like a chore. Oh my God. One of my favorite scenes in season one with Harry, who we should talk about, oh, is yeah. when he's having sex with her and she basically like pushes him off of her and then starts masturbating and like won't let her touch him. And I was like, oh my God. Yes. I mean, I feel like I've had the would you rather question pose, like, would you rather give up sex or masturbation? And I'm like, are you serious? Do you really have to ask me that? Do I want to never have an orgasm again and be forced to maybe get pregnant? Or do I want to like keep living my life on my own goddamn terms? You fucking tell me. I know. Wow. That's really, really funny. I mean, I, I do think that Harry is lame. I would oh, not yeah. want to have sex with that person. <laughs> but she is sort of needlessly cruel to him. Except, again, I appreciate that that's because she's not in a good place. Yeah, she's not in a good place. She's also very clearly way too smart for him. He's one of those guys who's like a sensitive man, but not in a way that's helpful. Like we had talked about in Chewing Gum, Aaron, how he's the perfect sensitive man because yes. he is masculine as fuck, but he also cares about other people's feelings and is in touch with his own. Whereas mm -hmm. Harry is kind of the worst of all possible worlds. He's the wrong kind of in touch with his feminine side, dude. It's really funny. He's afraid of being raped. He dries his hair in a turban. He shops at H&M. When we meet him in season two and he's had a baby with his new girlfriend, Fleabag jokes, oh, it sounds like you have postnatal depression and he says I do we're working through it and it's like he's just the kind of man who needs so much emotional maintenance that he's all of the quote bad things about femininity and none of the good things he's yes. not performing any emotional labor he's just being a whiny needy little biatch and I, I love to hate Harry he's so funny Oh, yeah. And when he tells her, I think you should stop masturbating. He's someone who is a total misogynist because there are real men out there who are so controlling of their girlfriend's sexuality that they don't want them. They would rather they never experience any pleasure or sexual agency at all if it's not going to be entirely dependent on them. Oh, fuck that. Hate that. I absolutely love that she is masturbating to President Barack Obama giving yes. a speech. Okay. <laughs> that, I love that that scene exists. I think I screamed the first time I saw it. Mm -hmm. And I love that Barack Obama himself has seen this show and recommends yes. it. Mm -hmm. But I also love that Harry is so deeply jealous and mm -hmm. pissed off when he realizes what she's doing. Now, he is asleep next to her while she starts whacking it to President Obama. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. There are a couple shit happens, but he's yeah. like so angry about it. Why would you do anything other than laugh? Exactly. They should have totally laughed about that together. <laughs> oh, I know. If I were so lucky as to have a boyfriend who was whacking it to a speech by Elizabeth Warren or Hillary Clinton while I was asleep, I would... I'd give that guy the best blowjob in the world. <laughs> or, or just laugh and like, you know, just... 
Let him continue doing what he's doing. But he actually, like, that's the moment when he breaks up with her, right? He's so infuriated that she would do this. And, like, that's another moment that, that Phoebe Waller-Bridge says that women come up and say that they relate to that moment more than anything else. And uh, I'd like to second that. Yeah. Oh, Remember my God. when we had a hot president? Oh. I do remember when we remember had Remember when we had a human president? <laughs> I do. Oh, remember when he sang Al Green? Oh, my God. But, okay, so we've talked about Harry. We've talked about Claire. Did we talk about Martin except to say that we hate him and he's a shit? On top of that, he's just so wrong for Claire. Mm -hmm. I can't quite make sense of it, but I feel that that blank might be filled in for us a little bit because Claire eventually gets this promotion at her work and she starts commuting back and forth from Finland. Eventually, it's revealed that she has also met somebody else within that company, also Mm -hmm. named Claire, who Mm -hmm. is handsome and kind to her and mm-hmm. and all that unlike her fucked up american husband martin but you kind of go like okay well there's somebody who's maybe trying to get out of the house a bit someone who's willing to commute to an- another country mm-hmm. but claire also has a stepson the stepson jake yeah. is briefly alluded to in an episode of season one in just a quick cutaway but then when we actually see him in season two I just feel so worried for him because we first meet him, he's playing in the church band where Fleabag, having already fallen for the priest, has volunteered. So she's watching Jake play while Martin is being really threatening and menacing and they're having this intense verbal argument while the music is going on. And then Jake comes over, thanks her for watching and gives her a hug and then... Martin starts making fun of him and kind of smacks him almost. And he's just really an abusive, horrible person. And seeing Jake just made me realize like, oh, I'm actually very worried for this special needs child to be left alone with his abusive, alcoholic, sexually inappropriate, mean, joyless father without, because, you know, Jake is obsessed with Claire. It's a joke. Basically, he has a catchphrase, which is, where's Claire? It's funny, but clearly, like, she's been married to Martin for 11 years, so she's been his stepmother since he was five years old, and she's clearly, like, the one bright spot in his life and the one thing giving his household any stability, and, like, I do believe that Claire does have a responsibility for her own happiness and should pursue the life that she wants and shouldn't be beholden to other people. Like, you know, our culture decided at some point along the way that women's lives need to be sacrificed for the betterment of their husbands and their children and the people that are dependent on them, but I really do genuinely worry about Jake and that's the one thing that makes me feel a little bit ambivalent about Claire's otherwise unambiguously happy ending. I have the complete opposite view because Jake was creepy before. I don't think that Claire's presence has helped him be non-creepy. It's not about him not being creepy, it's about him not having anything standing in the way of his shitty father. Jake takes Fleabag in his arms and says tell her to leave him. Yeah, I guess that one line does sort of make it seem okay. That and Fleabag turning to camera and just saying he's going to kill somebody someday. Like, I don't know how much I'm supposed to even really think about Jake. Claire has that line. She kind of explodes at, at the dinner table when she's put on the spot. And she says, you can't just hop on airplanes and leave your weird stepson and broken sister to fend for themselves. Yeah. And, and that is the moment where you finally kind of go oh, this is what she's been secretly carrying the entire time. She feels stuck here and she feels it's her responsibility to fix these people or if not fix these people, be some kind of guiding light or rock for these people. And it's not working. 
Nothing Clear's mm -hmm. doing is actually really helping any of the internal stuff in Fleabag's life or in Jake's. It's just that female thing of feeling trapped inside a certain kind of life. You feel like everything's already set up. Oh, well, this is the job I'm in and I'm stuck with it. Oh, this is my partner and I'm stuck with it. Should we talk about Godmother now? Season two, the, the first episode, has been credited by multiple people as just kind of one of the greatest episodes of, of the series, if not one of the Seconded. greatest episodes of, of oh. television. Oh, completely. Yeah. And um, I think that Godmother is at the top of her game here because, you know, talking about the hyper-realism of, of conversations in the show, mm -hmm. the way that everybody's talking over each other, trying to have several conversations at once, and mm -hmm. something that Godmother keeps doing is asking someone a question, mm -hmm. and then during the answer, she'll interrupt and change the subject back to herself. There's a lot of good examples of that. There's also, in, in the penultimate episode of season one, when they're having a memorial lunch to commemorate the anniversary of their mother's death at, at their father's house, and the godmother just inserting herself rather than hanging back and letting them have their time as a family to, to grieve and reminisce, she'll like interrupts and be like, oh yes, my ex-husband used to do the same sort of thing. He would do funny voices as well. Just can't not have it be about herself. In another interview, Phoebe Waller-Bridge described her as an excellent magician of cruelty. Mm. She has mastered the art of the fake niceness but she is just complete poison underneath i also love that she's an artist she's a very sexually free and liberated artist all of her works seem to be about sex even the ones that at first don't seem to be about sex like there's this <laughs> canvas that's basically just red paint and she says oh i had an orgasm as soon as i finished it and it's like oh fuck you yeah. i hate everything about you right one important thing we haven't mentioned yet is this statue oh yes godmother has this statue in her studio and it's just a figure. There is no head, no arms, no legs, but you see the naked boobs and ass and waist of a woman. And it's a very voluptuous, powerful, kind of goddess-like image. Fleabag straight up steals it. Yeah. And throughout the first and second season, they're playing with this idea of Fleabag has it. Oh, now she's going to give it to Claire. Claire returns it. And it's like this circular thing. And mm -hmm. this body is very voluptuous. It's very, mm -hmm. you know, comely and, and striking. But then by the end, Godmother very casually says she was based on your mother. And mm -hmm. so we know, therefore, that like, okay, she was gorgeous mm -hmm. and had this incredible womanly body. And we also learned that Fleabag's mom was Godmother's mm -hmm. art teacher. And so Godmother probably also has this incredible inferiority to be jealous of oh, a dead woman, but probably also like a dead woman who was hotter and more talented than you and mm -hmm. had this like family and, yeah. and a wonderful husband who you've been secretly lusting after. Mm -hmm. I mean... F Fleabag's mom, I feel so protective of her in a way. Yeah. When Fleabag gives the statue back to mm -hmm. Godmother at Godmother's wedding, and, yeah. and she casually says, she was based on your mother. You can tell she loves saying it. Like, oh, yeah. you've had it all along and now you're returning it to me and you'll never get it back and it's your mom. Yeah. That moment of like, oh, you better fucking steal this again or I'm going to scream. <laughs> yeah. See, I actually initially had the opposite reaction because, yeah, the, the statue, as you said, it passes through a lot of different hands. It's probably the main prop and a huge bit of symbolism running throughout the whole series. And 
when she returns it to Godmother, I was like, oh my god, I love that it's coming full circle and that this seems like such a huge marker of maturity that she's willing to let this go and redress her past mistakes and own up to the thing that she denied for a year having done and like be the bigger person in this relationship where there's this shitty petty person and again like I've had relationships with people who were older and more mature than I who just can't resist twisting that knife a little bit further into my heart and I'm like you know what I'm just gonna let it go water off a duck's back I'm fine you be your own fucked up neurotic person and I'm going to take my journey separately over here now and then in the final scene when we see that she has restolen the statue I thought oh fuck like I mean I understand that we're meant to see it as like a victory because she has taken the best bits of her mom like I, I understand the symbolism but when I first saw it I just was like she's just right back where she started because the very last shot of the first episode is of her with this stolen statue and it's like has she learned nothing I mean clearly she has and we, we can talk about you that. know what when it comes to someone like Godmother, who is pathological. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's not operating on the same level as the other people in the show. She doesn't yeah. have a conscience. Like, if you are Hillary Clinton on stage debating Donald Trump, it's kind of like, do yeah. I keep this on Earth or do I do whatever he's doing? Because this isn't a fair fight. Yeah. When you're trying to be respectful of someone who's never going to respect you... Mm -hmm. and that person is actually psychologically different it doesn't matter what you do no that's true i mean fleabag's tried everything with godmother she's tried being overly nice and polite mm -hmm. and calm she has tried doing the same exact passive aggressive wordplay mm -hmm. she has tried actually pushing her like mm -hmm. she's she's tried everything and nothing has worked no, so I, I kind of feel like by the end when godmother on the day of her own wedding can't meet her halfway and just say thank you for returning this to me I kind of mm -hmm. feel like all bets are off you're never gonna fucking win with this one you do your thing no that's a good point I've come around on the idea of her stealing the statue and how it's an act of empowerment for lack of a better word you know if you think about what the statue symbolizes like obviously it's tits it's a woman's body without head or limbs it's the thing that Fleabag is struggling with is her identity as a woman and as a young sexually active sexually desirable woman in the world and every female relationship and this is so complicated her relationship with her dead mother with her dead best friend who she fucked over with her weird sister with her horrible godmother and with herself and with her identity living in this body that she has been taught from society has this expiration date on its value and she has that heartbreaking monologue in the final scene of the first season where when my body becomes old and unfuckable, I should just kill it because I have nothing left to give. And so she's attracted to it because it's pretty, it's shiny, it's expensive, and it's a way to stick it to her godmother who treats her like shit. And so she steals it just kind of impulsively without really understanding it. Just like she does everything impulsively without really understanding it. Just like she fucks a whole bunch of random people without really understanding why she's doing it and what the consequences might be and what she could or could not get out of it. But then... Mm -hmm by the end she finally does sort of understand how to mindfully be a woman in the world how to have a connection with another person how to make love not just fuck for the performance of it and for the story later mm -hmm. and when she officially knows you know not just on a symbolic level but once she knows the actual significance of that statue as being representative of her mother then yeah she takes it 
in a really conscious way and she understands the power of that decision and I think that that is really beautiful that yeah. it, it comes full circle but it means something this time Godmother does say that the statue is meant to be quote an expression of how women are subtle warriors <laughs> strong at heart and so mm-hmm. yes did the actual statue that she created really signify that in an obvious way I'm not so sure of that however yeah. The idea that Godmother speaks out loud is something that the show keeps bringing up again and again. There's one more person from season one that I really want to talk about who is, I think, the only other, besides Claire and Fleabag, the only other dynamic character, which is the bank manager. I love the bank manager. I love the bank manager. We haven't talked about the bank manager and we haven't talked about Boo. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. But the bank manager, we meet him in the first episode. She takes off her shirt accidentally, believing that she has another shirt underneath it. And he accuses her of trying to seduce him in order to get this loan. And then she insults him and he calls her a slut. And at first you just think, oh, what a shitty one-off character. But then he makes a return in the episode where she and Claire are gifted the stay at the silent retreat. So while they're at the silent retreat, which is just such a comical way of reducing these wealthy, mostly white women to just the most, like paying an exorbitant amount of money to be reduced to the most basic elements of shitty gender roles where they are silent servants. Like they're supposed to find peace and calm in doing, performing menial tasks. So they're like gardening and scrubbing the floors. (laughs) But then meanwhile, the silence of this peaceful retreat is intermittently punctured by hearing a man at the retreat next door yelling slut (laughs) and that is because there is I think it's like the the better man retreat or something like that where all of these men who have problems with women shall we say are brought in to learn how to get in touch with their feelings and to overcome their outward misogyny it's hilarious they're so remedial that they need to be taught basic manners like toddlers like there's this inflatable woman that they name patricia and it's like patricia is your colleague who got a promotion uh, she's the youngest person ever to get that role and she got it over all of these people so what is it not okay to say who'd you blow to get that job fucking slut blah blah, blah. okay what is okay to say to patricia congratulations patricia and it's like very good give yourselves a round of applause that yes that fucking killed me because like men do need to be congratulated in order to do the most basic decent bare minimum thing it's also just funny that like just hearing the word slut intermittently it was like such a perfect little metaphor for like catcalling and how a woman's inner peace or just like minding her own business and going along with her day is always intruded upon by men yelling some misogynistic slur or somehow grabbing their attention and puncturing that that thought bubble and that silence um that was just really fascinating to me. But anyway, Fleabag sneaks over after she's hearing all of these weird profanities coming from next door. And she see- she locks eyes with the bank manager. And he then explains that he felt up a co-worker and he really regrets it. And he just wants to become a better man and move on. And he ha- he delivers this really heartfelt speech. And it's so sweet and touching. And I just wrote the note, my kingdom for a teachable man. They are so fucking rare in life. And like, you wouldn't expect that the bank manager, based on his first scene in this, would be like, maybe the most lovable and sympathetic male character of the whole goddamn thing. But he completely is. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, take note, male listeners, just fucking learn from your mistakes, own up, grow a pair, move on and like claim your shit. We'll love you for that. It takes very, very little to be considered a good man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except I still think that the loan manager 
has it in him, whereas the guy just yelling slut and training himself to not yell slut is is kind of on a different level. There are some people who are lost causes, but I would hope that any man who has the stomach to listen to a podcast hosted by two <laughs> unapologetically misandrist feminists, I would hope that you belong in the teachable category and that there that, that there is hope for you. Uh, otherwise, you're just like probably listening and getting angry and yelling slut in your room by yourself while listening to us <laughs> if you don't think <laughs> that's, that's kind of a waste of everyone's time. Oh, um, God. Well, what, what sucks about patriarchy so much is like, I don't want to be angry at men. Mm. It's exhausting. I'd yeah. really like to think about something else. Give me give me an option to not be angry at you and I will take it. But I'm not going to not respond in the logical human way. Yeah. When, when presented with a stimulus to be fucking angry about the way that the world works and the way that you treat me within it. Correct. Now, I want to say about both of the retreats. Mm -hmm. First of all, they just couldn't be more different. The retreat for all the women is to remain silent. It's like, continue to do what women have been expected to do for centuries. Yes. And with men, it's like, stand in a circle and everybody scream your innermost thoughts. Yes, exactly. Well, there we go. It's like they're cavemen around the fire and now there's a something that represents a woman and they're all gonna, you know, go crazy on it. Mm -hmm. And when Fleabag and the loan manager meet up, there's an admission on both of their parts about how they're not getting what they need from their respective stupid fucking retreats because yeah. the, the loan manager's beautiful monologue that you brought up, he, he opens by saying, they keep asking me what I want. I'm not mm -hmm. telling them because then he talks about what he really wants, which is I want to move back home. I want to hug my wife, protect my children, protect my daughter. I want to move on mm -hmm. and apologize to everyone. Yeah. And then she says, I just want to cry all the time. They kind of want the opposite of what they're being instructed to do. Like he wants to take a deep breath and focus on other people and do better for other people. And she wants to have the freedom to break down and cry all the time. She can't do that at a fucking silent retreat. Yeah. And she also feels like she can't do that in her day to day. She replaces the sadness with, you know, compulsive sexual encounters and drinking and stealing things or whatever. They're both just kind of distracting themselves from what they really need, which I feel like is a rabbit hole that the healthy of us, healthiest of us can fall down. We talked about the self-care in the episode last week about, you know, what's better self-care, seeing your gyno or putting a jade egg up your cooch. Like, <laughs> the, the the harder, more uncomfortable thing. Mm -hmm. Well, out of those two things, I'm not sure. I mean, that's, that's... <laughs> now, I, there's, I haven't done one of those, but I would bet that that's the more uncomfortable one. Yeah, never mind. Because um, gynos use a lot of lube. <laughs> a lot of lube? Yeah. Don't they? I've never really paid attention. I, Does I'll, yours I'm not just... slather it onto the speculum? Because mine is like... You know what? So much. I, I, I'm sure my doctor does, but I'm just looking at the ceiling at that point. Well, I'm not like looking, but you can feel it and hear it anyway. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the egg's not going to lube itself. You would lube the egg. I know, but does everyone have that much... I don't know. This egg isn't going to lube itself. <laughs> that is a sentence that I, I wonder if you're the first person to ever utter it. I kind of hope so. This egg isn't going to lube itself? <laughs> um, 
Anyway, anyway, <laughs> I think it says a lot about men and women and the way they're uniquely asked to deal with their feelings when really, when it comes to fucking turmoil, we're all people and we all kind of probably just need exactly. to feel safe enough to vocalize what we truly need. The bank manager also makes another appearance at the end of season one after every single person in Fleabag's life has let her down. Not just by abandoning her in a moment of weakness and need, but also specifically by pairing up in a couple. That's like the extra little salt in the wound because her father chooses the godmother over her very explicitly. Mm -hmm. Claire very explicitly chooses Martin over her. She gets dumped by her fling who wants to go back to his ex-girlfriend. And meanwhile, Harry has started things up with his new girl. Like she's so lonely. She has fucking nobody. And while everybody that she has trusted to some degree lets her down someone unexpectedly pulls through and in this case it's the bank manager who visits her guinea pig themed cafe and gives her a chance to redo the interview and then we assume gives her the loan that allows her business to thrive in the next season and so sweet a similar pattern is followed also in season two where the person that she trusts and expects not to let her down lets her down but someone else unexpectedly pulls through and the person who lets her down is the priest and the person who comes through is claire in the season one finale where She's let down by her dad and Claire in Mm -hmm. kind of quick succession. You can also kind of sense that both of those people are making their choices out of fear. Have we mentioned yet that Martin totally kisses Fleabag on Claire's birthday? Oh, yeah. He's a shit. We have mentioned that? No, we haven't, but I'm saying, oh, yeah, that happened. No, we haven't talked about it yet. (laughs) When she tells Claire this at the silent retreat, Claire's very, very upset, but she does believe Fleabag. Mm -hmm. And so then by that finale... When Claire says, like, I'm staying with Martin, how can I trust you after what you did to Boo? It was such a clear deflection of of responsibility and and shame and and all that bullshit and, you know, clinging to what she knows out of fear. And you also get the vibe more than once from Dad that things are weird with Godmother. Oh, yeah. And when he he sticks with her in the end, just out of kind of habit, it sort Mm -hmm. of reinforces... The idea of what we eventually see at the end of season two, which is like Fleabag, out of a lot of the people in her life, she's the one who's kind of the most fine on her own. Maybe we're seeing it her at her worst, but she's not unwilling to give it a go. That's a very good point. When we're seeing her at her lowest point in her life, when she's suffering from multiple losses and completely ill-equipped to deal with them, she's still doing like, pretty okay considering with a couple of glaring exceptions and then she does manage to come out the other side she's a survivor for sure Mm -hmm. one more thing about godmother as sort of like a foil for fleabag is the the season one finale it's i think that this is another just perfect episode of television whereas the season two premiere is perfect is like a hilarious high energy farce this is hilarious as like a really sad self-pitying wallow that I just love to rewatch when it's like oh every bad thing goes wrong at once and everyone's just piling on but I know you love that I do love it it's so (laughs) I don't know why it's my favorite fucking thing but um but like so so the setting is that the godmother is having 
this sexhibition, which is an exhibition of her work that is all sex-themed. And so you've got, like, this whole wall of just molded penises and, you know, the, the bidet on which she had her first climax at the age of, I don't know, 12 or something. It's all just, like very like I feel weird saying this but I feel like people like Godmother are why I hate the term sex positive do you know what I mean because yeah she's so relentlessly positive about it that she doesn't really recognize the dark like uglier sides of it except for when she talks about her her piece the, the stolen statue a woman robbed as being symbolic of how a lot of women have their bodies and lives stolen from them but like that seems like just sort of a ham-fisted way of like co-opting and interpreting this thing I, I don't know it's not it doesn't seem genuine to me so Fleabag and Godmother like Fleabag's attitude towards sex is so casual and cavalier and like oh it doesn't mean anything I don't really enjoy it it's not that great but it's something that I'm obsessed with and I can't stop thinking about it. and she does it compulsively and the idea of someone not wanting to have sex with her is the worst thing in the world and then on the other hand you've got this really cheery like oh I'm such a sensual woman and I love I'm so in touch with my body and I just sex brings life and it's the most joyous most important thing in the world and like I can see how those two ideas are sort of in tension with each other because I mean they're both very free with sex obviously neither of them is like a puritan saying oh you're going to go to hell if you have sex outside of marriage and it's a dirty evil thing but I don't know it's kind of two sides of the same coin I think that what's happening here is that and this happens with narcissistic people they yeah. know when someone has their fucking number yeah. Fleabag knows that dad isn't that happy Mm -hmm. Now, do we wish that dad were actually happy with her? Of course, because dad is lovely. But is I don't... He? Sorry? You said dad is lovely? I think that he's just kind of a bumbling guy who doesn't know any better, but he's not a bad person. Okay, well, we'll, we'll talk about that later, but finish your sentence. <laughs> he, like, kind of could be a lovely old man, but he's, like, fucked up in this in this relationship and he's not in touch with his feelings. But okay, I don't think he's okay. a bad father or a bad person. All right. We have different takes on him, but sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Keep keep talking. Now I'm intrigued. You you don't think dad's kind of great? No. No, I think he's a terrible parent. You think he's a ter Okay. <laughs> I try to keep in mind that we're only seeing him on his own and bereaved is all. I, right. I try to keep that in mind. But, but you I know, don't th I don't think he's a good parent, but I think that I don't know. At the end of the day, I'm kind of always rooting for him. Lovely, though, for that to be the word that you describe him as. I only see him as being cruel to Fleabag and withholding and not being able to give her what she needs in the same way that Claire is for much of it, except that Claire does eventually turn around and say some nice things and do some nice things. But from not being willing to loan her any money when her cafe is struggling because he's bought a vacation home in France with Godmother, or telling her that she's not allowed to go upstairs in her own childhood home because now that's Godmother's territory, or know, turning her away. He's in when a she toxic shows up in relationship. He's in a toxic relationship with a narcissist. I yeah. feel for him. But even when Godmother isn't present, in the series finale, he tells her that he doesn't like her. He says, I love you, but I don't like you. And that is such a hurtful, disgusting thing to say to a child. And I have a parent, I won't say which parent, who had a parent, I won't say which of their parents, said that to them. And it's fucking scarring and disgusting. And I have no sympathy for any parent who ever says that to their child. I always kind of interpreted it more as 
Not as a joke, because it's not funny. Yeah, he's terrible. But when he does then say, like, I like Claire, like, they both laugh. I've always just found it so ambiguous and weird, but I've always liked it for that. And I don't know if I'm supposed to think that he's all bad because of the circumstances that he's in and the way that he's acting. Because, again, I never saw him before Godmother. I'm not saying that he's all bad, because I think that if the show teaches us anything, it's that nobody is all bad. You can find ways to be sympathetic to just about anybody, even the most cartoonishly villainous of these characters. Like you said, you can see that Godmother is acting from a place of extreme insecurity. You don't necessarily sympathize with her, but you understand where that's coming from. And so, mm. yeah, we, we haven't seen very much of Dad, but the fact that we never see him give any little crumb of kindness to his child like I don't know and the fact that he would side with his new lover over his own daughter to me that's like an unforgivable cardinal sin of a parent to do that I get that but I do not forget that that woman is hugely controlling and he is totally afraid of her and completely sucked in I mean I think that that makes him the Macbeth to her Lady Macbeth but Macbeth is still guilty as fuck in my book I think I wrote an essay about that in high school well, Macbeth is obviously guilty as fuck, Jesus. That's what I'm saying. I mean, this isn't regicide, it's just being a shitty father. But I think that I've made my point that dad is a shitty father. Well, dad is obviously a repressed, weird English person. No offense to all you English people listening. You can't <laughs> like, blame the Englishness on There I mean, is a lot of that happening. The way that he says things to them like, do you need me to say anything emotional? <laughs> like, I think that that is obviously played for comedy and he's so fucking English. Except here's, here's where you're wrong. He's Scottish. Boom. Okay. Well, <laughs> the Scottish are all weird as well. Well, all, all right. <laughs> I won't tell your many lovers. <laughs> I won't tell Peter that you said that. Oh my god. I think that I used the term lovely when really I just sort of enjoy watching that character. Oh no, no, no. Here's the thing. I love every character in this show the same way that I love every character on The Simpsons. Like, Mr. Burns was my favorite character on The Simpsons when I was a kid, but he's like an objectively evil, horrible person on every level. But I love watching him. It's not okay. like, let's say... Jar Jar Binks, where I hate the character because I don't want to watch him, but I have nothing against him as an entity within that world. I don't think he's evil. I just am not interested in seeing it. So everybody okay. in this is a Mr. Burns, not a Jar Jar. All right. I am not trying to make excuses for dad, but okay. I guess I can see that were there not this huge barrier between them, I want to believe that it could have been better. Okay. One more character to talk about, and then I think we can move on to season two, which is we've, we've barely, we've, we've mentioned Boo. But we do get to see Boo in some really lovely and sweet little flashbacks sprinkled throughout both seasons. Uh, what do you make of Boo? I think that Boo's incredible. Yeah. She's so funny. She is so... Again, I, I want to be her friend. And you completely see why they're friends. I had made the note of, like, they're completely in love in that heterosexual female way. Yeah. Like how we were talking about with Abfab. I was gonna say. There's this physical intimacy with them that's very sweet. And they're not exactly opposites, but they're complementary. They're clearly both very funny and on the same wavelength, and they get each other's jokes, and they can just kind of read each other's minds, and there's this real ease of, of communication and such a camaraderie and a rapport. But also 
they are a little bit opposites because Boo is definitely the light to Fleabag's dark. And then when that light goes out, then she's just left with her own cynicism and with no one to balance that out and no one to reflect that off of. And mm-hmm. and so she just becomes so lonely and bitter and desperate and sad without that balancing influence. Like, I mean, there's the part where she's talking about the, the little boy who was shoving erasers up hamsters bottoms uh and how boo immediately responds with compassion saying why would they send him to prison he needs help and also the fact that she immediately latches on to hillary the guinea pig and loves her so much she's clearly the more nurturing open-hearted one uh fleabag is maybe the the more kind of dry sarcastic one perhaps a little bit smarter a little bit sharper but boo has a greater emotional intelligence and i just love them together so much she's she's the vanilla gelato to the flourless chocolate tort that is fleabag Ooh, she she softens her yeah she she does she, she is the one who falls in love with hillary the guinea pig and then makes the cafe guinea pig themed yeah that was never <laughs> something they set out to do <laughs> exactly and then and then fleabag is stuck with it having to take care of this creature that you know she brought on herself but she never really bonded with but it's like kind of yeah. all that's left of boo I love Hillary. So season two opens a year later after the events of of the finale of season one. And you see that Fleabag has been making all of these efforts to move forward in her life, to adopt healthy habits. She exercises and eats well, and her cafe is finally thriving. And like, she's kind of doing pretty okay. Certainly the best she's done in a long time, but there's still something missing. And so they're gathered together in a restaurant to celebrate the engagement of dad and godmother. So this is obviously the first time that we meet the hot priest that the whole internet is obsessed with (laughs) aka that divine d he's so cute dude you know okay i don't know what it says about me that i'm more attracted to him as moriarty than i am to him as the hot priest probably nothing good (laughs) well look watching sherlock i was only ever you know looking at benedict so i have two eyes two eyes for two men (laughs) (laughs) okay no it's funny because only seeing andrew scott as the priest in that first scene dressed in civilian clothes i kind of went whoa i didn't know moriarty was hot so anyway for me it's there's that one scene in sherlock where like he asks someone to like reach into his pocket and give him some gum (laughs) you thought that was hot dude I mean, again, I don't think I it says anything good the... about me psychologically, but... I that was one of the creepiest things I'd ever seen! <laughs> you know, I have a feeling that we're going to disagree about Andrew Scott in this, too, as far as what's sexy versus what's creepy. So, so let's talk Ooh. about the priest. I mean, I'm fascinated by their dynamic, and I really love that Fleabag, for the first time since Boo's death, has someone who is operating on her same level of consciousness and wit and being able to carry on an intelligent conversation with no bullshit. They are a good match in that way, though, obviously, you know, cannot be because of circumstances beyond certainly Fleabag's control. Mm -hmm. It's kind of great. Like, it's the ultimate obstacle for a sex addict. She meets someone that she can't have, or so she thinks. Right. But she's also sworn off sex recently. So That's true. It's, it's funny that two celibate people are, are kind of connecting. They instantly have a chemistry. There's also the fact that he's this outsider at this really dysfunctional family function 
<laughs> dysfunctional family function with this family yeah. that you know hasn't all been together but is performing this sort of normalcy because there's an outside witness it sort of reminds me a little bit of and i know that we haven't talked about the league of gentlemen yet but i know you'll at least understand what i'm talking about is charlie and stella and how they can only relate to each other when there's a third witness like when luigi the waiter comes over like they're they're completely silent and then he comes back and they're like hey luigi you know luigi blah 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 like especially godmother is just completely performing for the priest and it's kind of nice for Fleabag to have an outside witness beyond just her secret camera friends to be like, mm -hmm. look at what I'm dealing with. Yeah. Here. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but one of the most fascinating things that you had alluded to earlier in our conversation is the way that the talking to the camera and looking at the camera changes because they meta break the fourth wall. They break the fourth wall of acknowledging the fourth wall by having the priest also able to first call her on it when she disappears. He says, where did you go? Just there. You you went away. What what happens? And then in the following episode, it's like my heart stopped with joy and surprise and shock when he also looks into the camera and it's like, oh my God, you can see us too. It was really great. And it's such a beautiful shorthand for these two people are completely on the same wavelength and understand each other in a way that no one else has understood Fleabag since Boo died, certainly. I love how the first time the two of them talk to each other at that dinner is when Fleabag turns to the camera and says, no one's asked me a question in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. And Father immediately picks up that cue and says, so what do you do? Yeah. And my note here is, we'll never know if he actually heard her just then. This is also like the sixth sense. Ooh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've always wondered, like, did he actually hear her right there? I mean, maybe being a holy man, he's just sort of like in tune with the vibes of the universe. And he understood on like some soul level, even if he didn't literally hear her. But does he literally hear her? Because he literally hears when she says his neck. Well, that's because she says it to him. She, it's one of those things where you say the loud part quiet and the quiet part loud because oh, she's she, looking at she fucks up. She, she's talking to the camera. He says, like, didn't you feel them leave, like, talking about funerals? And then she turns to the camera and says, they were already gone and then says to him his beautiful neck and it's because she oh. meant to say the wrong thing. She's okay, so infatuated with him that she is, like, having a hard time keeping straight which thing to say because he's someone that she can finally confide in and so he's serving that purpose for her. And it scares the shit out of her. It's very scary to, I mean, just like you said about how Godmother or Martin or anybody is on edge because Fleabag sees through their bullshit. He's the mm -hmm. only person who's ever been able to see through her bullshit, you know, defense mechanism and the avoidance technique of retreating into herself yep. and talking to us. Yep. So that's unnerving. Claire sets up that idea of um, being open to the people who want to love you. Mm -hmm. Both the priest and Fleabag have a hard time doing that. Mm -hmm. I have a different fourth wall question. Yeah. This haunts me. So... Whenever Fleabag addresses the camera, she's always speaking in the present tense. Mm -hmm. You never see her doing it in flashbacks, yeah. right? Because she's always doing it in the present tense. So the episode opens at the end. Yeah. She's wiping blood off of her nose. And then she turns to the camera and she says, this is a love story. Mm -hmm. And then we flash back to the beginning of dinner. Right. Everything unfolds. We see her get the bloody nose. And then we see her in the bathroom again, dabbing at her nose. And before... Before the moment arises that she would have said this is a love story, she's outside of the bathroom. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if this links to what the therapist tells her an episode or two later about you already know what you're going to do. Oh. I wonder if Fleabag in the bathroom already knows that she is going to fall in love with that priest or if she's talking about just 
love in general or or whatever but the way that she turns to the camera and says this is a love story i wonder if she's just kind of already figured this is what's going to happen that's a really interesting question and i don't think that there's necessarily a clear answer i think that like so much of especially the convention of breaking the fourth wall is like a rorschach test that's open to interpretation it could be that she has already prepackaged this story that's happened and is narrating it for our benefit it's also possible that she just has that sense of anticipation and she knows that it's going to be a love story because she's already caught the feels for the hot priest it's possible that she means it in more of a broad sense and it's possible that yes she does already know what she's going to do like you say that i hadn't thought about that i hadn't thought about how it sort of plays with the timeline in that sense of the narration that's that's a good point <laughs> um, but bringing yeah. up the idea of the therapist so there is that therapy session with fiona shaw so good there's that oh, that great quote so why do you think your father suggested you come for counseling um i think because my mother died and he can't talk about it and my sister and I didn't speak for a year because she thinks I tried to sleep with her husband and because I spent most of my adult life using sex to deflect from the screaming void inside my empty heart. I'm good at this. She paints a picture of herself as this very sad person, but she's still trying to charm and win over the therapist by using humor and by deflecting in the same way that she has charmed and won over all of us in a way that I think we're meant to recognize by season two that it's not healthy for her mm -hmm. that she can't stop performing that she needs this validation from this external thing and she this is another moment where the fourth wall breaks to an even greater degree she says you know do you have any friends and she says yeah loads and then she looks at us and winks and at first you're like oh i feel so special i'm her friend and then she says something about never being alone and she says they're always there mm -hmm. always and she looks at us and it's like oh what this this is what i meant when i said how do you interpret the breaking the fourth wall like what does it mean because it's not like in the world of fleabag she literally has a camera following around that's documenting her every move like this is clearly symbolic of something deeper and i think that my initial interpretation of it was maybe incorrect or at least very different from what phoebe waller bridge explicitly stated she intended to do where it is her lying to herself and her trying to package her life in a way that everything's fine and her always performing as a way to avoid dealing with her grief in a productive way. But the way that I saw it was that it's more like like a writer-artist brain kind of thing. Like, there's a moment in season one when Harry is breaking up with her and he says, like, don't make me hate you. It's painful enough to love you. And she says, I'm not being funny. I think that you should write that down for your songs. And then he takes a funny beat and then he goes to write it down in his notebook. And it's like, it's that artist instinct of saving your pain for later when it can be processed and turned into something beautiful and packaging it. And, and you know, sometimes I do find myself like narrating my own life as if like, oh, this will be a funny story later. Maybe this is something that I can use someday. Or like you find yourself performing as if it's a scene i think it's common especially for people who've grown up with so much movies and tv for us to think of our lives as stories and sort of try to force them into those boxes and i don't necessarily think that there's always something unhealthy about that i think that i don't know i interpreted the breaking of the fourth wall as something less sinister than i think it was meant to be because i think that both as a character in a tv show and just as a person in this world fleabag talking to the camera and narrating her own life and giving all these funny witty asides is what makes her special and unique and interesting and it's what makes her her and in a lot of the same ways when I retreat into my head and file away something that maybe I can use for later that's what makes me me you know what I mean hmm okay 
interesting so that's why i, I found the that. ending so heartbreaking her secret camera friends we are like receptacles for all of the jokes and the truths that are too smart for the room and that would be wasted on the people around her by the end of it i recognize that it is the correct way to conclude it and is probably the emotionally healthy thing to do within the world of the show but it still feels a little bit wrong to me like she's giving up the thing that makes her special huh I guess I would feel that way more if we didn't have the flashbacks of her and Boo. When we see her with Boo and she's with somebody who really gets her, she's not censoring herself or limiting herself. And I don't miss the asides. I think she's just as funny and complete and herself when she's with somebody who is really good for her. I guess that's true. However, jumping ahead to the finale, that is the first, that is the only episode where she doesn't have any asides or looks to the camera in the little teaser before the title card. And I already miss her. I can already sense her slipping away. It's just her looking at the back of the priest's head in bed after they've shared this fantastic intimate night and she's dropped all of the pretense and she's not looking for validation outside of the world that she exists in. And I am already like, oh no. My flea bag is abandoning me, you know what I mean? Okay. I never thought of it that way. There is a conversation she has that I've already alluded to, but she doesn't have any asides when she's talking to Kristen Scott Thomas. Oh. So yeah, no, I think right. that when she's with her intellectual emotional equals yeah and she's being seen and more importantly allowing herself to be seen and belinda has that incredible speech about women being born with pain built in women are born with pain built in it's our physical destiny period pains sore boobs childbirth you know we carry it within ourselves throughout our lives men don't they have to seek it out. They invent all these gods and demons and things so they can feel guilty about things, which is something we do very well on our own. And then they create wars so they can feel things and touch each other. And when there aren't any wars, they can play rugby. And we have it all going on in here, inside. We have pain on a cycle for years and years and years. And then, just when you feel you are making peace with it all, what happens? The menopause comes, the fucking menopause comes, and it is the most wonderful fucking thing in the world. And yes, your entire pelvic floor crumbles and you get fucking hot and no one cares, but then you're free. No longer a slave, no longer a, a machine with parts. You're just a person in business. It is something that I wonder if I've thought about but just never articulated or perhaps I've never thought about it. Obviously I've thought about men have no idea what it's like to have a monthly cycle of pain and you know mm -hmm. emotional turmoil on, on top of physical pain but I've never thought about this idea of men having to create it for themselves in order to experience it mm -hmm. and therefore it's in the form of violence or, mm -hmm. or what have you, and it's very performative and they want the world to see. Yeah. But women are meant to sort of hide the very predictable pain that they live with in the day to day. Yeah. And it, it does make us uniquely strong. 
but it also makes us uniquely guilty, as she says. Men need to invent excuses to feel guilty, and she does say they invent gods and demons, and I do think that that's an actual nod to the priest. Yeah. When Fleabag's flirting with him at one point, he implies that he has a darker past and that he's had a lot of sex because he says it's easier to be celibate than it is to have romantic entanglements and sex never brought anything good. Yeah. On top of that, the priest is always drinking. Yes. He's always numbing himself to feelings in one way or another, whether yeah. it's becoming intoxicated or turning to the Bible, turning to a god that's going to dictate unto him exactly what to do. Mm -hmm. There are things that he's not equipped to face that Fleabag is boldly running into again and again. Yeah. And she's going to get knocked down again and again, but she is never actually just, or well, no, she does numb with sex and stuff in season one, but she's yeah. trying to improve herself this time around. Mm -hmm. There's just so much of that Kristen Scott Thomas moment about women just kind of facing pain all the time. Completely. And men have to sort of invent it and choose it at their will. Going back to the thing that you said about how the priest is always drinking, I think that that is a huge red flag and one of the reasons that I'm not really rooting for them as a couple. I obviously was very intrigued and I loved the tent. It was very Tim and Dawn. Like, I love that this can never be. But then once it became a real possibility, I was very worried and very protective of Fleabag. I just kind of knew that he was going to end up disappointing her or hurting her in some way. And I really... By the fourth episode, I wasn't rooting for it anymore. I mean, I wouldn't have had the series end any other way. If the two of them had run into the sunset together, no. I would have been more worried. Yeah. But I was happy for her to have the experience knowing that she was going to end up heartbroken because I knew she was in love. And yeah. I just wanted her to have an experience where she felt something fully and faced it. I get that. But I still, I just want so much better for her. Even though, as I said, she's done some despicable things, but I am 100% Team Fleabag. I am so in her corner. When they first kiss, it's in the fourth episode of the second season. And I think I told you this at the time, the day that I watched it, the night before I had gone to see the movie Five Feet Apart, which is a cheesy melodrama of the sexy dying teens variety. They have the same lung disease and they have to be five feet apart, otherwise they'll infect each other and die and uh, one of the joys of seeing a movie in New York City is people yelling at the screen and there was this part when like the two sexy teen leads were like going to kiss and possibly you know risk their lives out in the snow randomly because like of course and someone in the audience went oh I want it but I don't want it and we all laughed because that was completely how we felt and I want it but I don't want it completely captures how I felt about Fleabag and the Priest I wanted it so much for the first three episodes, but then the moment when they finally do start to get together before they're interrupted by <laughs> presumably God making a painting drop in the church and cock-blocking the priest, they go into the confessional and she confesses. I just think I want someone to tell me how to live my life, Father, because so far I think I've been getting it wrong. But I know that's why people want people like you in their lives, because you just tell them how to do it. You just tell them what to do and what they'll get out at the end of it. And even though I don't believe your bullshit and I know that scientifically nothing that I do makes any difference in the end anyway, I'm still scared. Why am I still scared? 
That's the episode where she has flashbacks to her mother's funeral. And so she's finally starting to deal with all of this grief that she's been carrying with her for years in an honest and productive way. And she's not actually there to chase the priest and flirt with him. She goes there genuinely wanting some guidance. And to me, that scene in the confessional is just such an awful abuse of power because he gets her to really open up and she's just this grieving, tearful, lost, broken woman in real serious need of some help. And then I think he just completely takes advantage when he just says kneel and it's so creepy like it, it felt I don't know it just made me really upset when she you know he pulls back the curtain and he's there and then like fortunately he kneels too and kisses her it's not like kneel so that you can give me suck, a blowjob which is what I was had. very much I was thinking like oh altar boys oh this is bad I hate the catholic church but that made me really kind of turn on him for the rest of the series I didn't hmm. I didn't like that. And then even in the next episode when it's very satisfying that he shows up after she's already made a booty call to the hot misogynist and has to turn him away. As fun as it was to watch them consummate this will they won't they that's been building for five episodes. She was fine. She was moving on. She was trying to get her life together without him. And then he came to her apartment in the middle of the night. And then in the next episode for him to abandon her like that. Again, I'm I don't want them to end up together. I'm glad it was the it was the right thing to do just from a narrative structure as well as just for each of these characters lives but I'm a little bit like fuck you like this was your goddamn idea Ugh, I don't know maybe I'm like bringing oh. some of my own baggage to this because I've definitely had oh I'm really interested in you I'm gonna aggressively pursue oh never mind bye like fuck you Kaylee I had a forbidden thing happening at the same time I was watching this that's show. right of <laughs> course I was angry at the fucking priest he's the worst it he's not the worst was, but he's no, not great it was almost comically similar dude the therapist saying you already know what you're gonna do i had had that conversation with my therapist a week oh before. my god yeah you had <laughs> it is true she goes to the church to just kind of pray about her mom and she does say to the priest i thought you'd be in bed it's 9 45 yeah but when she hears him awake she does walk over to him and she does already fancy him by then so I don't want to label him a creep or taking too much advantage because she was willing and she is heartbroken when he interrupts their making out she is then heartbroken and does screw the lawyer and like have a hangover which is echoes of season one fleabag completely so in a way whether him telling her to kneel and then kissing her in the confessional booth was morally dubious or not is it better that the priest reappears in her life after she starts screwing the lawyer and then like breaks her heart and forces her we assume to take the statue and go home and do some goddamn reflection and growing mm -hmm. is that better than what might have happened if he hadn't shown up and broken her heart would she have just continued drinking and screwing a lot of people and gone right back to to where she was i still think that damn it you got that, me. <laughs> that true heartbreak she says the worst thing is that i fucking love you yeah he's about to even cut her off and she's like no 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 let's leave it out there just for a second on its own yeah. i love you and he has the line, it'll pass. Oh my God. Which is so terrible, but- But it's so apt. It's so true. It's always true. But again, it's kind of like he's in love with her too, but he's choosing to remain in this regimented weird existence because he doesn't trust that he's equipped to do the sacrificing and growing that she's completely arrived at on her own. Hmm, yeah. Because women are- 
quiet, strong warriors. Yeah, big gold tits. And this bitch just is not. And he's got to be yeah. drunk all the time. And, you know, he's got to just like fucking run away. <laughs> I hope yeah. that fox follows him and just tears him up. From a narrative standpoint, I was rooting for them to get together, but it wasn't an unambiguous, like, Tim and Dawn, oh my god, my heart lives, oh, I shipped them so much. Like, already by the time there's that confessional scene, it just makes it kind of murkier, which I think is good. I think that was intentional. I don't, th- I think that if it had been just unambiguously really hot, like, church-themed porn, which I think some viewers did kind of interpret that like, oh my God, that scene is so sexy. I found it very yeah, disturbing, I... but I liked that it was disturbing because it should be disturbing because it is a big deal for both of them and mm-hmm. not something to be taken lightly as they've both right. treated sex in the past. Right, right, right. You know, she says this is a love story and obviously there's a romantic love story, but when he makes his speech at the wedding, his speech about love, it's so fun and quirky and raw and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But he says, being a romantic takes a hell of a lot of hope. Love isn't something that weak people do. And I just think that, you know, he's talking about Fleabag and dad says to her, you're better at loving than all of us, which is why it makes you so sad. And you get that from your mom. And It's obvious there is a different way that Fleabag expresses affection, not in the unhealthy ways, but she can express herself in ways that Dad and Claire cannot. So yeah, totally annoyed with the priest. None of that was going to happen had he not given it the green light. Yeah. (laughs) And it does suck that all he has to do is think about it for a day and then go, uh, no, too real, cannot compute, I might get hurt, and just kind of leaves her with getting hurt. Fucking little brat. Can I read a text message exchange that I had with my 28-year-old little brother about this show? Do it. When he finished the show for the first time, he wrote, Fleabag effed me up had dreams last night, was like a real breakup. And I said, it'll pass. And he wrote, terrible. I said, how do you interpret the very end? He says, IDK, it made me misty-eyed though. Her face freaked me out on her last look before she walks away. Just felt very real and said a lot with her face. And then eight hours later, he writes again, some haunting shit, Fleabag versus God. And like, what's gonna happen to Fleabag now? She gonna go on a sexual bender? That priest too, he's been where Fleabag has been to some degree, maybe. And what the woman of the year in business was absolutely right and exemplified at the end. Fleabag has been through all this shit, we've seen it, a lot of pain. Some self-inflicted, whether it was purposeful or not. But born with pain from being a woman, and then symbolically born with pain after mom's death and everything since. But after all of that, she gets through the other side and finds the love, maybe the right one. And he chooses suffering over love, creates the pain. So fucking insane. This is killing me. (laughs) Bravo, Mikey. All right. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Do you want to be a guest on this podcast? (laughs) I guess you just were. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, that interpretation. That's really lovely. I have to say, when I first saw this finale, I didn't love it just because of how it makes me feel. I I don't mean to say that it's bad or that I could have done any better or that anything about it is not exactly correct. There are so many 
wonderful, joyful moments. I love Martin's speech. I'm not a bad guy. I just have a bad personality. It's not my fault. (laughs) And I love Claire saying, the only person I'd run through an airport for is you. And I love the thing that the dad says about how you know how to love better than any of us. That's why you find it all so painful. Even the breakup between Fleabag and the priest, it's correct. I see how she's grown. I see how it's a very sweet, bittersweet ending and and the fox and everything. Like it's every little moment is correctly laid out. But then for me, it's very heartbreaking when she breaks up with us as the audience when Mm. she gives that subtle little shake of her head that we can't follow her and then she gives that wave like I'm gonna start crying because I just feel like you know her talking to the audience as we said it's because she needs someone to listen to her and understand her and without her mother and boo she hasn't had that and then she does get that in like little glimpses in season two we see that she she doesn't need us when she's able to connect with someone on a real emotional level but then when she doesn't even have the priest she still doesn't have that she's still like completely fucking alone in the world except for her sister who she finally has some clarity with but she's just fucked off to Finland to you know pursue the love of her life so she's she's very alone I would feel better about her leaving us if I felt that she were in a better position but I just didn't feel that anything had really concretely changed in her life except for like knowing that she is capable of loving like you had the power with you all along click your ruby slippers blah 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 like that that's nice and everything but I feel like she just gives us up at the exact moment when she's more alone in the world than at perhaps any other time since this exhibition and I don't know that's again it's that interpretation of how addressing the camera isn't so much an avoidance technique or an unhealthy emotional habit as it is like her expressing herself and being her authentic self again I realize that that wasn't the artist's intention but just the way that I interpreted it I don't know I just uh I I feel like living in the moment is overrated (laughs) and she she makes the wrong decision (laughs) in the end what okay no I'm just I'm just saying that like I don't find that aspect of the ending hopeful I don't I okay like I guess that from the point of view of the show we have technically been her enablers in her lying to herself and her avoiding her real emotions. I get that now. I'm just saying at the time when I first watched it, I felt like, oh God, she's walking off into the night alone with no friends and no love and a canceled bus and the same stolen statue from the fucking pilot and everything. Here we go again. It's all just the same. And now she doesn't even have us. What the hell did she do? Okay. Well, that is true in a lot of ways, but she's really a much healthier person than she was the first time we saw that happen to her. I know, I know. She's equipped for it this time. And I will say when she's at the therapist's office and she says that they're always there, Mm -hmm. I kind of went, oh, that's sad. I thought, oh, I didn't know that I was your friend. I want better for you than some invisible friends. I I do get that. Because again, when she's with Boo in the flashbacks, she doesn't have to do that because she's with someone that she's actually connecting with. Mm -hmm. And when she gets to go off in her own little world, yes, of course, she has these incredible jokes that are not going to land with the people who are actually around her. Mm -hmm. But it's also her excuse to make jokes about everything that's happening and this and that. And so, yeah, it was very sad. And I I like gasped out loud because it was just one fucking you know kicking the balls after another during that fucking finale but when she nodded and and she smiles and she turns around and waves I kind of thought like okay she did that because she's ready it's like she's everybody worries that she's the most vulnerable and fucked up one Mm -hmm. but she's the one telling her protectors 
go. No, it's true. And that takes such tremendous strength and, and love. Yeah, she she does develop a lot of emotional maturity from the beginning to the end. And I, I completely agree. As I said, I've come around on this finale, especially a lot in the last 24 hours. It's just, it's so petty of me. But like, even in the episode before, when she's in bed with the priest and she pushes the camera away, I am happy for her. It's a great moment. I recognize objectively that it is the emotionally healthy thing to do, but I feel personally hurt by it as her secret camera friend as <laughs> crazy as that sounds <laughs> oh my god i wonder if there is fleabag porn <laughs> because of the omission of that sex scene i wonder if some nerds have filmed it fleabag porn did you find any nope nothing okay wait ooh. no I think it's just a bunch of actual scenes from the... Anyway, go ahead. I have ideas for a fuck, marry, kill if you're down. I'm down. There's going to be so much fucking and marrying and killing. It'll be like the show itself because there's a lot of different... Mm. There's a lot of different categories. So, okay. So, first season men. <gasps> fuck, marry, kill roommate. Okay. Harry, arsehole guy, bus rodent, and bank manager. Go. Uh, oh, no. I think I have my answer, actually. The bus rodent? I just... Kill that dude because he brings nothing. I mean, I could kill any of these people except the bank manager. Exactly. Well, that, I'm, I'm marrying the bank manager. I'm marrying the bank Me manager too. because he's the only one who is a full person, who's capable of growth, and who is a lovely man. He even looks after the cafe for Fleabag, which he goes off during the Claire, the hair emergency. It's so good. So marry okay, bank manager. Okay, you know manager, what? I, I have mine. I have kill mine. Kill bus going. rodent. Fuck arsehole guy. And have Harry as my roommate because he would clean regularly. Exact same answer yeah. for the exact same answer. Perfect, reasons. perfect. Okay. Now, the men of season two. Priest, hot misogynist, and male Claire. Go. <gasps> Ooh. Ooh, 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 ooh. This one's a little harder, but I think I also have an answer. It's upsetting because I don't want to kill any of these people necessarily. Yeah. I really don't hate any of them enough, not even the hot misogynist, oh, no, who I think is hilarious. Oh my god, so good. He's like an Alan Johnson, like on steroids. <laughs> yes. He's so funny. But you know what? It does look like a fun night out, and I might choose him as my shag. Oh, thousand percent. I'm definitely getting nine orgasms from that guy, marrying Claire, and, sorry to say it, killing the priest. Cause, Same. Yeah, because organized religion Same. is damaging in its way, and he's an alcoholic, and he's not gonna- I mean, he's a priest, so he can't fuck or marry me. So really, I'm doing him a favor. He could if he had some fucking backbone. That guy became a priest to run away from the world. Yeah. What a wimp. Okay. Here's a really hard one, which is the family. Martin, Dad, and Jake. Go. Ew. Yeah, I know. <laughs> These are all hard in different ways. Oh, God. Martin, Dad, and Jake? <laughs> I, I included every character in the show. I can't with... Oh, God. Martin, Dad... Ooh. <laughs> I'm killing Martin. Does dad have to be that old? Because according to Godmother, he's good in bed, but I still don't need to find out that. Well, I think dad is that old, and that's why I'm marrying him. Because then I could just inherit his beautiful house after he kicks it, probably within the next ten years. Well, okay, I'll I'll marry him, and then I guess I have to fuck Martin, because I'm not going to fuck a 15-year-old. Um, he's 16, FYI, and you can wait till he's 18. I'm killing Martin because he's a horrible piece of shit, and I'm fucking Jake because I'm sorry that actor's cute. 
<laughs> and then finally, we have Fleabag, Boo, Claire, and Godmother. Ooh, there's a lot of good roommate potential here because I'm going to kill Godmother. Obviously, same. As far as marrying, I feel like any of them could be kind of fun because Claire is clearly a very happy, fun person when she's in the presence of Claire, even for a minute. Mm -hmm. Still might be a little intrinsically too anal for my taste, though. But she's yeah. hot. So maybe I would shag Claire. Mm. Boo is so lovely. I want Boo to be my she roommate. She would be a wonderful roommate, but she might also be a wonderful partner. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I, I would honestly marry all three of them for different reasons. <laughs> no, I know. So I know. One thing that I kind of keep running into over and over again. Yes, it is devastating that Boo's partner cheats on her. Mm -hmm. She does then really take that leap, though. Yeah. And I'm not saying that she should have gotten over it or accepted it within seconds, but she has a complete breakdown. Mm -hmm. And that made me kind of scared. Yeah. So I do wonder if being a roommate of hers would uh, leave me a little bit less off of the hook when it comes to keeping her safe and happy. She's she's definitely my roommate choice because again, she's, she's yeah. so warm and lovely and sweet and has such emotional intelligence that you would have a built-in friend, but not necessarily a life partner because I think that also, not that Boo is dumb, but she's not as smart as Fleabag. And so that's why I would have to marry Fleabag because again, I would like to have someone that I could have an emotional rapport with and like quick conversation with for my whole life and I'd fuck Claire because she's hot and then also like if Boo is my roommate then the three of us could have a really fun little living situation going yeah Claire's rich that, that would be maybe an upside to marrying Claire but yeah maybe oh, she well. could pay me some hush money for having sex <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what what to make yourself feel a little bit better about what happens to Fleabag next I mean don't forget she's got Belinda's business card Ooh, that's true Belinda no, I, says, you call me if you need anything at all. I and so do. maybe <laughs> find some season three fanfic or write, write some, some season, season three, three fanfic. Fan Ooh, because yes. fuck all this fanfiction about her and the priest. Yeah, that's been played out. Write some beautiful <laughs> sapphic fanfic. I love that. Oh, man. You know what? Okay, so I've, as I said, I've really come around on the finale. It's it's a perfect finale. It's just not a feel-good finale, obviously. It's no. like, it's very bittersweet. And it's one of those finales. I can think of three shows that have done this to me, where when I see the ending, and it's completely right, and I can't think of a way to improve upon it, but like, I at the end of it, I'm just so sad to say goodbye to one of my favorite shows that I feel like I can't breathe. I just cannot get enough air in my lungs. And this preceded the coronavirus, so don't worry. But I want to briefly talk about a weird idea for an American equivalent that I have. A show that we've talked about a lot on this podcast, weirdly, is BoJack Horseman, which... Again, I'm going to make another plea for everybody out there who hasn't already seen it to watch it because it is my favorite show of the last decade, Fleabag being a very close second or maybe a tie. On the surface, I know that this may seem like sort of a silly comparison, but here's what connects them is that both shows are really moving portraits of a deeply sad protagonist with an awareness of their own shortcomings that makes them more human and more forgivable. They're both very funny, likable charmers who are just drowning in their own sadness behind the scenes. They both start the show with one parent, and that parent, at least to my eyes, is very cold and cruel and blames the dead parent for all of the aspects of their child's personality that they find unsavory. No spoilers, but they're both accidentally responsible for tragedies that befall someone very close to them and then they're haunted by it for the rest of the series and probably their lives. And also, even though the characters 
both do despicable things, you're just rooting for them so much to change. More than that, you're just rooting for them to be fundamentally okay. And I don't know, both are just such wickedly funny and original shows that go to some very, very dark places and grapple with questions of redemption. Like, is redemption possible and what does that look like? I don't know, I just think that both of the shows are so unique in tone and spirit and execution that if you asked me what's a show that's like Fleabag or what's a show that's like Bojack Horseman, I would be hard pressed to give you an answer except perhaps to say each other for all of the reasons that I listed above. And also I just fucking love them both. Well done. Thank you. And, and, and yeah, so, so to bring it back to the finale, that's another show that, uh, you know, it ended in January and I took the day off of work to watch all of the episodes. I finished by noon and the finale was perfect and it also just devastated me and I was so sad that it was over and it was also like kind of emotionally ambiguous. But as with Fleabag, I've warmed to it each time I've rewatched it and I'm finally able to be okay with how both of those shows ended. Got it. Yeah. I didn't realize you had taken the day off work to watch BoJack Horseman. Well, fucking Netflix releases things on a Friday. I mean, I wasn't going to like wake up at midnight and then go to work at nine. <laughs> I'm not insane. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. Oh my. This has become a show that's meant a hell of a lot to me in a very short amount of time. And I think it's specifically because it deals with the idea of just being a single lady and it's not dealt with it in the same sort of, quote, empowering way that we've seen before. Yes. I love that it's about a single woman who never once really has to say the phrase as a single woman. <laughs> it's not trying yeah. to make any kind of case for us. Yeah. And it's not trying to make any kind of case against us. Mm -hmm. It just is. And it's just a sloppy person who's also kind of a self-made career woman in her own right. Mm -hmm. She just doesn't feel the need to defend that to within an inch of her life. Yeah. It's just a portrait of a person mm -hmm. and she happens to be unmarried and not really rich because I, I feel like when you do have the single woman in older television shows she's also very rich or she's you know Claire with the Burberry coat mm -hmm. like trying to always prove herself I don't need a man because I have all of these other things that I've gotten for myself and now I'm gonna talk about it for 10 minutes yeah. I just think that it's great I, I think that it's great for dealing with that topic in a in an organic kind of way and letting letting it be what it is. And I love that it deals the same way with heartbreak. This is how a breakup kind of looks. And this is a person who's hopefully going to be healthy enough to deal with it. We're led to believe that she is, but we're not going to be hit over the head with any answers or any one way to interpret it. I second absolutely everything you said. Yeah, it's, um, there's no right way to be a person. There's no right way to be a woman. There's no right way to be a feminist. This show very artfully dodges any easy answers that you could formulate to any of the big questions of life. It's just a pure joy from beginning to end, whether you're laughing your guts out at like a silly haircut or you're crying all of your mascara off at all of the ways that this show just pulls your heart out of your chest it's it's a masterpiece i fucking love it yeah um has that been season six uh five <laughs> <laughs> it has been season five uh thank you guys so much for listening i really hope that we've been able to keep you company and provide you with some comfort during your 
period of isolation or, you know, difficult emotional times, uh, recording these episodes, having these conversations and, uh, and watching these shows has been a huge comfort to us. I know it's been a way to keep sane and, uh, we love you. We hope that you're all safe out there. We would love to hear from you guys. If you want to drop us a line via our website, anglophiliapodcast.com or our Gmail address, anglophiliapodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet and Instagram us at anglopodcast. Um, yeah, thanks. I got I got nothing but love for y'all. Got nothing but love for y'all. Uh, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends, and we'll we'll be back when we're back. Yeah, probably before the end of the year. Yeah, oh, I'll put it this way: we'll, we'll be year. back before Broadway's back. Oh my god! I know it's sad. How weird is that? Oh man, I wonder. Oh no, I daren't jinx it. I wonder <gasps> if the next time we are back, we might have a different incoming president knock on all of the wood fingers crossed i should cut this <laughs> i know that that's gonna show up in the microphone and i'm sorry that that made noise but i just instinctively started doing that as no, you no, said no, it's knock okay on all of the wood. um you guys uh if you well no matter where you live if you live in a democracy get out there and vote um it's especially important to us as americans if you're american to do that but really wherever you are uh Stay, stay informed, stay involved. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to get on like a soapbox. I just, I, I suddenly thought about the outside world and got really upset. I'm going to cut all this. This is really dumb. Bye. And the second we hang up, <laughs> Kaylee is going to YouTube Barack Obama. Oh, well, now I am. <laughs> <laughs>